All right. We're taking all the best old school wisdom and blending it with the top new school methods to bring you the optimal coaching strategies. This is the 8020 Baseball Podcast with Coach Bo. Welcome, coaches, specifically youth baseball coaches. Thanks for being here. Excited. Episode 153, our weekly get together where we're honing our coaching paradigm. We're gathering tips, strategies, things that actually work out there on the field with the players that we are trying to help serve, trying to help get them better at the game of baseball, trying to help them be better teammates, instilling discipline in a fun environment like baseball, trying to really get them ready for the real world for life through the vehicle of baseball, youth sport. We can make this so much fun and so useful for the kids moving forward. And the icing on the cake is an opportunity possibly to be a really good varsity player when they get to high school or get a college scholarship or play professionally. That's icing on the cake. That's icing on the cake. That's not the cake. What we're here doing today is baking the cake. If that happens, that'll happen. But that's more up to the kid. And that's not up to us necessarily, except for creating a fun environment that gets them on the path to more success in all those ways that are useful, that are going to help, not just in baseball, but in life. Today's podcast, I have my top three baseball coaching book recommendations. I'm going to share a coaching tip that has to do specifically with the catching position. We're going to discuss scooping versus blocking. And in part three, Carlos Correa, I'm going to splice in an audio that I found very fascinating from Carlos Correa, who really struck me as somebody who has a really good grasp on what or where the world of baseball is that in terms of strategy and coaching up players to be the best that they can be in their specific skill areas. All right, let's jump right into this. We're going into the top three, number one, number two, number three rankings of the top book recommendations that I have for you for coaching baseball specifically. Last week, we covered number four through number eight rankings. So the bottom five of the top eight books that I recommend you go check out. And you'll notice something about the books that I recommend. Last week, I shared five books with you that I recommend heavily recommend. Only two of them had to do with baseball. The other three, I don't even think they mentioned baseball in the entire book. The word baseball doesn't come up, but that's the thing. It doesn't have to come up to be a golden resource for us as coaches. And even better, you can use those books, those three that were not, and go back and listen, those three books that were not baseball books, you can go listen to those books and get a lot out of them to help you in the business world, to help you with your jobs, to help you with your company, organization, etc. So let's start with book number three, the third ranked book in my top eight. At this time, my current top eight of coaching book recommendations, number three, Wooden, A Lifetime of Reflections on and Off the Court by none other than John Wooden. Book number two, The 8020 Principle by Richard Koch. And book number one, Leadership Strategies and Tactics by Jocko Willink. The other one I would throw up there is Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink, but I highly recommend Leadership Strategies and Tactics by Jocko Willink. Coach John Wooden's book is just very fascinating with the connections with players, simplicity in coaching. Yeah, Wooden, a lifetime of reflections on and off the court is gold. The 80-20 principle, enough said right there. The 
80-20 principle is something that really should be at the forefront of shaping our paradigm on how we look at everything. It's a, you know, the 80-20 principle, Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. It's not an exact number ratio, but it's a guideline. It's a paradigm in how we look at priorities, but it's really essentially at, at the root of it. It's a way to quantify priorities. It's a quantification of prioritization. Now, Richard Koch has other books that are really good, but the 80-20 principle definitely got to find a way to get that going into your life. In fact, I was at my kids' soccer game a couple weeks ago, and I started talking to one of the other dads. He's a little older, and I just I said, hey, we're talking. He asked me what I did, and I shared out, you know, and then I asked him, I said, so what do you do? And he goes, I do fundraising for colleges, a consultant for colleges and how to get their donors and how to get donations to do the things colleges do with those donations. Well, I'm not going to get into that right now, but he shared out with me how things work in that area, that industry, that process. And it hit me right away when I was listening. I said, do you, you get about 80 to 90% of your donations from about 10 or 20% of your donors. And he said, not knowing the name of the 80-20, not knowing the baseball, 80-20 baseball or the podcast or any of that. He said, without skipping a beat, without a doubt, the 80-20 principles everywhere in what we do. And it made me chuckle. And I just had to go, hey, you know what? The company that I have is 80-20 baseball, the podcast, 80-20 baseball, the website, 80-20 baseball.com. It's everywhere. When you start listening and seeing it, it's everywhere. And understanding how it works really can help guide our prioritization. So 80-20 principle book by Richard Kosh, really a good book. It doesn't talk about sports at all. It doesn't talk about coaching, not that I can recall, but it definitely is something that should be at the forefront of not just how we coach, but how we live our lives. And the top book, Jocko Willink. A lot of you know who Jocko Willink is. He's very well known, very popular. And I started listening to his podcast years ago and I listened to the first hundred and they're, they're rather long, you know, they're two, three hour podcasts. And I'll tell you what the books to me for coaching, I think the books are more than enough. He's got four or five books out right now. I think those in and of themselves are just gold, gold across the board. There are the top three book recommendations that I have for baseball coaches. My number one book recommendation overall, I said it last week and I'll keep saying it, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And I'm not going to go into too much more about these books. Either you're going to trust me and go read them or you're not. I'm not going to push them any more than that. I do recommend you find a way to get those books, at least listen to at a minimum or read a chapter a night. And I guarantee you'll see benefits right away and huge benefits over time. This week's quote that I'm infusing here between parts one and two is by somebody who may or may not go by the initials CB and host a podcast similar to this one. And the quote is, quote, the youth coach's record that matters more is not the win loss percentage, but the percentage of players that want to play that want to play for their coach again next season. It's not your win-loss record. It's the number of players that want to play for you the next season. I understand not all of you might coach next season or your team might shift. and might not be the same players. But if you have an opportunity to keep the team together and you are coaching next season, which many of you do coach multiple seasons, the most important record that you have, the more important and the most important, in my opinion, well, the most important is how many of your kids are positively influenced 10 years from now, 20 years from now by your coaching strategies, your coaching methods, and how you you and what you bring to the field each day as a coach. But from a percentage, something that's a little more easy to quantify, what percentage of players want to play for you next season? What percentage of players would return to play for you? That to me is much more important than your win-loss record. Now, here's the thing. Those will go together. Those will go together. Players that want to play for their coach, that trust their coach, they will get better results on the field overall or the most part. And I'll leave it there. So keep that in mind as you move 
move through your coaching journey. Now, part two, scooping versus blocking. This question came up in an email from one of my original listeners. And you know who you are, coach, out there in the beautiful panhandle area of Florida. This question came to me and I thought, wow, this is a really good question. The question was posed, scooping or blocking, which would I recommend? And here are my thoughts on the matter. It's very straightforward for me in terms of how it should be coached up, how it plays out in a game on a certain pitch. That's going to be a bang, bang thing. It's going to happen quick, but I think it needs to be taught in a concise manner. It's very similar to the hitting approach, and here's why. The hitting approach has to do with a pitch coming in. The hitter doesn't know where the pitch is going. They don't know. They shouldn't know what the pitch is. They're up there. It's really just a quick reaction. There's no time to think through steps, to really go through a whole process of a bulleted list of exactly what to do, what not to do. And the same thing goes for catching in this particular case because the ball's coming in too quick to analyze, to compare and contrast, to quickly sift through a bulleted list of or a checklist of things. And I think the instructions need to be an either or, and it needs to be clearly understood and clearly communicated. This is when you're going to pick or scoop. And when I say scooping, that means picking the ball. You hear a lot of coaches talk about picking or scooping. Should they scoop or pick using their glove, almost essentially try to catch it off a bounce, or should they block the pitch that's coming in? So we're talking about balls that are hitting the dirt. And should they pick it? Should they scoop it with their glove or should they block it? Here are my thoughts. It should not be coached as an either or matter, in my opinion. And what I mean by that is I've seen catchers that try to block balls, that try to block pitches that were out of their blocking range, and they would have been better off just attempting a pick or a scoop, especially on those very errant pitches. Moreover, I've seen catchers try to pick balls, try to scoop balls with their glove, pitches that is, where in fact blocking or attempting the block of the ball would have been a much higher percentage move. We're playing the percentages here. Now the kids should not have to factor in percentages or do the math during the game. Ideally, we can train our catchers up and they know exactly when to block and when to scoop or dig. And when I say exactly, is this going to lead to a perfect result? Of course not, because there are things with these bounces that are out of catcher's control. I think being very good at both is ideal, but what's really important is that catchers clearly understand what pitches or what balls should be blocked and which should be picked or scooped. In other words, what pitch location require the catcher to go into pick mode versus using the higher percentage block move. Another thing to factor in are field conditions. Many fields at the amateur level are not conducive to picking balls consistently. There's a much smaller margin of error when you're picking or scooping a ball with your glove as a catcher. Inherently, when you go to scoop or pick, you have a much smaller pocket on your catching glove than you do on your chest protector or your pads, typically chest protector area. That inherently, even if you use just a center cut of that chest protector, it's much bigger than the pocket on a catching glove. So when catchers are picking balls, their margin of error is much smaller. And if the bounces are not extremely predictable, this can definitely lead to a long day behind the plate. And especially if their battery mate goes all nuke Lelouch. So here's what I would do coaching up the catchers in this particular instance. I would test their range. I would test their range. I would take the catcher out by themselves or with a second player, but I think you could just do this one-on-one and have them show up or stay after practice, the first couple practices or whenever they decide to become a catcher or if you move them to catching midway through the season, I think it's important that you find out or they know how far can they move left to right laterally to block a ball effectively. Sometimes they can move over their body near where the pitch is going to bounce, but they can't square it 
up. They can't get their chest protector in the right location spot. So I'm talking about they can effectively move their body quickly to the side, how well they can do that. And I think the only way to figure that out is to go test it. Throwing balls left and right, left and right now. Again, whenever you do something like this, you have to have some control factor in there. You have to make sure you have to throw some center cut pitches, some balls that just bounce right down the middle, bounce off the plate. And you never tell a catcher like, all right, we're going to work on the left side now. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's one of the biggest mistakes when it comes to drills and setting up a drill. This is one of the biggest competitive advantages is sitting out there for coaches to have. In a game, nothing is going to be predictable in a game for the most part. There's percentages, but predictability, we need our players to practice in conditions that are not super predictable and are not being told to them beforehand. Like, for example, all right, we're going to work on our backhand and now we're going to work on our forehand. You can say that and maybe work on a couple specifically like that. For example, if you're working with infielders, you can say, hey, we're going to work on some backhand, some forehand. But then the drill should not always just be to that one side. It should be to both sides or middle. The more variables you can put in there, the quicker they have to react and think like in a game. So when you get the catcher set up behind the dish, you're throwing left, you're throwing right, you're seeing how far they can go out there. Now, to be really good at this, you would be the pitcher and you'd move back to about the distance that the pitches are coming in at. If you can throw it the same speed as the pitchers, the average pitcher on your team, if you can't, as the coach, throw it that hard, I know some of us got bum arms as we've gotten older, then you scoot up or get a coach that can throw it really well and have them throw some pitches like that or have a pitcher. I don't like having players practice throwing pitches in the dirt. I think this should be something reserved for coaches. But if you have to use a player, use a player. But I think ideally 99.9% of the time you can use a coach for this or yourself. And you're throwing pitches that are coming in at the same speed, the same pace. So that means you might have to get a little closer. Maybe not, depending if you're coaching 9U, 8U, those mounds aren't too far. You should be able to some zip some balls in there about the same speed as most of your pitchers. So that gives a fair and honest assessment or replication of the game pitch. And then you're bouncing left, right, bouncing left and right. Now your bounces, your throws, your, your errant pitches, your artificially errant pitches, are they going to be perfectly placed? No, but if you do a sample size of about 20 to 30, the catcher and you will start to see, and, and you could even videotape it a little bit, you'll start to see the range that they can move side to side and get to, which it's going to be very similar for most catchers at the same levels. But some catchers just can flat out move left to right laterally much better. They can move really quick. Some can't, but maybe those catchers have a better arm or they're better at you know framing the ball or whatnot. So that's why they're also catching, or maybe they're tough or maybe they're good leaders, but maybe their range side to side is not that great on blocking balls. So maybe you would with them say, hey, if the pitch is right here in this spot or if it's over the plate and it extended out maybe six inches to a foot on each side, you're going auto block mode. You're going block mode on that. No scoop, nothing inside this range. Everything is blocked. You're only scooping when you can't get in front of that ball, when you can't square up that errant pitch with your chest protector. And so this is something that you rep. They'll start to get better at and realize that there's just two modes that they go, that there are. There's just two simple modes. First and foremost, plan A is to try to keep it square, block it with the chest protector, keep it in front of them. That's plan A. Now, let me back up. Is picking the ball or scooping the ball as a catcher faster? Yes, but it's definitely not more consistent and it's a lower percentage. And I firmly believe it's going to cost more bases. It's going to give the other team more bases if you coach up just pick and scoop all the time and not block. But I think picking and scooping absolutely needs to be worked on. But the catcher needs to know when they go to scoop and pick mode. When do they go to scoop or pick? So you just tell them like pitches in this area, you can draw one lane, you know, use obviously over the plate and how far out do you want to extend it on both sides and say, okay, if it's between this, if it's between the batter's box, you know, the inside line of the batter's box, you can say that. Or if it's within six inches 
on either side into the batter's box, then you say, all right, if it's in there, you're blocking it with the chest protector. You're working over to get that body squared up. If not, you go to scoop. You got to scoop it. So I think I wouldn't spend a ton of time on this in terms of trying to talk about it. I would just test it, test it, and then rep it and also give them feedback. So you really try to see how far they can slide out and block, really challenge them to slide out and block. That should be a drill that you work on with catchers no matter what. You're really trying to see how far they can move side to side and how quickly they can do it and still stay square to the pitch, square to the ball so they can keep that ball from bouncing all funny and bouncing off behind them and stuff to the side, but really trying to keep that ball out in front of them. The best blocking catcher I ever saw was, this was back when I was just getting into coaching in the mid 2000s. This was like 2005 or 2006. And I was watching film of a kid at Lakewood High School in Southern California. And Lakewood High School is a uh, very well-known baseball school. And I'm watching film because we're playing them in the quarterfinals of the Southern California Championships. And I'm watching, and I'm watching this catcher and he's blocking air. I mean, he was getting out further than other high school, way further than other high school catchers were getting out left and right and squaring and keeping that ball in front of him. He could literally bounce it into a bucket every time. It was so, it was like he could have bounced those deflections right into a coffee can. He was so good. And I, the next day at the field, I'm telling the other coach, and my coach is a Hall of Fame. The guy I'm working with, he was my high school coach and I'm working with him. I'm a pitching coach. And they said, what do you think? He asked me, because I did the scouting. He said, what do you think about this team? You know, what do you think? And I said, this catcher is the best defensive catcher I've ever seen at any level. Now, mind you, I had just got done playing professional baseball. I played at Long Beach State for four years and there were some really good catchers when I was there. And I said to the coaches, I said, this is the best defensive catcher I've ever seen. They're like, come on, Bo, this guy's, hey, how do you know? Like you're talking, and I said, no, he's the best I've ever seen. So this was over 16, probably 16 and a half years ago when I said this. You know who that catcher was? Travis D'Arnaud. Travis D'Arnaud. You guys won the World Series last year. He's the Braves catcher. They had one of the best teams again this year. That guy's a stud. And he's not in there for his hitting. He hits the ball pretty well. He's not a terrible hitter, but he's in there because of his defense. And I just remember he did not get stuck in the mindset of, oh, if it's right here, I got to go and scoop it. He was like, I'm going, he literally, the mind, I don't even need to have asked him. I could just tell by watching him over and over again. And since I followed him through his career, his attitude was, I'm trying to block as many pitches as I can. And then it, only if I have to, do I go to the scoop? Only if I have to, do I go to the pit? So coaching catchers, the mindset should be to try to block as everything they can until they can't. And they should learn the better off they would be knowing that range. So they know right out of the hand, okay, that's a pitch that I might be able to get to with my chest protector or not. Default mode is slide over block, go to pick mode when I have to. And essentially pick mode is when it's outside of that area that they can block, when it's outside of that lane. This coaching strategy that I'm sharing out, these two modes, this really falls right in line with how we coach here at 8020 Baseball. And when you really break it down and it's not to be a certain way or coach a certain way, and then you got to go fit how you coach to fit into that group or into that category. No, you look at it and go, what's the best way to coach this? And then wherever that puts me, that's new school, old school. If that puts me coaching it this way or that way, that's where it puts me. But you'll find that if you're all or nothing, all it's never black or white. It's always a gray area. There's always two ways of doing it. It's never like only this way, only blocking, only this way, only scooping, only picking. It's both. Catchers should be able to block the ball and also scoop the ball. And they need to know when each of those becomes the higher percentage play. And this is going to happen quick. So they have to drill this in and it has to be very clear on the explanation and the understanding so it can happen quickly. And then they rep it. Then they rep it. Then you rep your blocking. Then you rep your blocking. Then you rep your scoops and picks and you rep the heck out of those. And then you're definitely going to be on your way to coaching up the catchers to be much better at their position.
All right, now part three, I'm going to splice in an interview from Carlos Correa. Carlos Correa, this interview that he put out, it was on MLB.com, I believe, a few weeks ago or a week ago. And as you're listening, see how much of what you hear sounds very similar to what we're talking about and what we've been talking about for the last two and a half years on this podcast. And the good news is for all of you that have been listening to this podcast, this is stuff you heard two and a half years ago, but it's really cool to hear it from somebody as successful as Carlos Correa. It's really nice to kind of see him explain it in his words. So I'm going to splice it in. The total clip is four minutes and I'm going to let it run straight through. Here we go. Carlos Correa talking hitting and the hitting approach. Yeah, so, you know, with the old school, it was average home runs, RBIs. So everybody look at that and judge a player based on those stats. Now there's a lot more information out there. Now it's all about projection. So how do you project a player? Play discipline is very important. WRC plus takes into consideration the ballparks you play in, the league you play in, the quality of contact, your play discipline, just about everything in just one stat. So when GMs, when front offices, when they look at stats, they want to look at WRC plus for a hitter, OPS plus, and WOBA. Those are the most important stats right now in baseball. Those are the new triple crown, as we like to call it back in the day. It's not average home runs anymore. So when I'm in the clubhouse with the players, I make sure I tell them, hey, home runs are nice. You know, if you can hit as many of them, hit them. But also focus on your play discipline. Get on base. Hit the ball hard. That's the key of the game, barrel balls. When I go into a clubhouse, right? This year I went to uh, with the Minnesota Twins and the first thing I tell a player is, hey, you want to make X amount of money? And at that point you already got them, right? And then you start explaining the analytics and how GMs think and what they look at, right? Because at the end of the day, they're the ones giving us the contracts. The owners, the GMs, they're the ones making the decisions. So we got to play to what they like, to what they want to see, to what they look forward in a player to help them win championships. And those are the stats, WRC Plus, WOBA. The WOBA is so important because it's weighted on base average. It takes into consideration how much you get on base, right? It's, it's very important. It's 1.8 more important than the slugging. You cannot steal a walk. You cannot steal a walk. You can hit a ball at 110, at 15 degrees, and it can get caught. When you have the plate discipline, doesn't matter if the contract is 10 years, 5 years. Mm -hmm. If you have the plate discipline like a guy like Joey Botto, a guy like Mike Trout, you're always going to have success because when you're going 0 for 10, there is 5, 6 walks in between, so your OPS is staying pretty much the same. Now, when a guy doesn't walk and doesn't have the plate discipline, when he goes on that 0 for 15 slump, there's no walks in between. So that OPS is just crashing down right away. So you want a guy that has the play discipline because even when the ball is not falling and you're not getting lucky, you're still getting on base and your stats, OPS, OPS plus, all that, is staying the same. From the pitching standpoint, what are the stats that are most important to help him out? So case per nine. If you can strike people out in today's game, you're very valuable to every organization. So as a pitcher, you look at case per nine, you look at FIP, you look at ERA plus. Those are the important stats. But as a pitcher, Pedro, you pitch in today's game, Game. Back when you pitch, you go based on feel and just reading swings, right? Mm -hmm. In today's game, there's so much data that you know where the holes for every hitter are. You know where Carlos Correa has a 300 OPS against this pitch in this location. So you know in that if it's the changeup in key situations, what are you going to do? You're going to throw that pitch because you know he's not hitting it and you have a sample size of 300 at-bats. So you know that even if he's looking for it, he hasn't been hitting it all year. So now you have so much more data to establish a game plan and have success against hitters. The way we hit is by mistakes. So when you guys make mistakes and don't execute, that's how we hit the home runs and that's how we slug. You're told to walk, 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 walk. But why? What's the importance of a walk? We were taught you don't walk off an island. You have to hit your way off an island. So the, the deeper the slump got, the more aggressive you want it to become to get that feel back. But understanding how they weigh a walk in a slump 
I would have done things differently. Although walks are important, I get on base, I can steal bases. We were told you have to hit your way out of a slump. You don't walk your way out of a slump. And to the people listening to us, walking doesn't mean put the bat on your shoulder and doesn't swing. Walking means that you're willing to give up those borderline pitches because you do no damage with those pitches. And you're creating that tunnel from where the pitcher is throwing the ball. You're creating that tunnel in the center of the plate. And that's where we do damage. When you look at the OPS on pitches middle, middle, it's very high. When you're on hitter's count, it's even higher. Mm -hmm. So you're willing to give up those borderline pitches because there is no damage on that. And you're only swinging at the pitches you can do damage with. And that's how you walk. You take the borderline pitches. You don't swing at the pitches that are way out of the plate. Well, there you have it. It's really cool to hear somebody at the level of Carlos Correa. First off, doesn't he sound really, I mean, he just sound, I mean, the way he explained it and articulated, that's pretty impressive. And I don't even think English is Carlos's first language. I think Spanish is, but I know he's Puerto Rican, so I'm pretty sure that is. That's impressive. It's just impressive the way he articulated everything he just said. But what's most impressive is his understanding of what really matters, the big needle movers, and his explanation of the hitting approach, gold. And if you've been listening to this podcast, we've been hitting on this stuff for the last two and a half years, but it's cool to also hear it coming out from these all-star, star major league players. And that was actually one of the best explanations of the hitting approach and also what stats matter to hitters and how to really accurately assess and quantify hitters' production. So I wanted to share that. I heard that and I said, oh, I got to share that with the 80-20 baseball community. And on that note, we're going to go Mariano Rivera mode here and we're going to close it out. If you haven't already, please leave a quick review, even if it's just a couple sentences, a review, a rating for this podcast. I don't have any advertisement on here. I don't have any, we're not, not plugging things. It's just content coming right to you, trying to come out every week consistently for two plus years. So at a minimum, a rating or review is huge and that helps big time. If you want to support the podcast, you can reach out to me, Coach Bo, 8020baseball.com. And also the 8020 Baseball Crash Coaching Courses, the coaching crash courses that are going to be ready to go with all the top drills, all the best ways to do pretty much anything in practice, script out of practice, flow of practice, sequencing over a course of a month or two, drills, pregame guide, all of that is going to be put in as being put into a course. And it might be multiple courses that will be available. And the goal is to have it ready January 1st. So you can be ready to go with that. So when those come out, it'll be huge. You guys go over support. You're also going to get a product that's going to give you so much more value than what I'm going to charge. But with that said, keep an eye out for that. Moving forward next week, we're going to talk about bear crawl and coaching leverage. We're going to talk about coaching leverage and how this is key when you're a coach. Coaching leverage is not something you need all the time. Sometimes you don't need it at all, but you have to have some leverage as a coach. We're going to talk next week about some tips that can help you as a coach go out there more confident and calm knowing that you have the right measures of leverage in place to be an effective coach, to leverage and, and motivate kids when intrinsically they're not doing it themselves. Sometimes they need that extrinsic motivation. And hey, that's how the world works also. So it doesn't hurt for kids to learn a little bit of that in youth baseball. And also next week, I have a clip, probably the funniest coaching one-liner compilation I have ever heard. And I'm also going to tie that coach together with 80-20 baseball. Talk about a couple degrees, one degree of separation. We're going to talk about that and how that coach on the clip, who's one of the funniest coaches you'll hear ever. And the best part, his one-liners are really true. And they talk about his team and how they played or how their team is prepping or how they played in the last game. And then he ties it in in the funniest way. His one-liners are gold. And I'll share that out next week. Until then, go over to 8020baseball.com. You got the drill design guide right there on the front page, the homepage, there are videos, a dozen videos, a dozen articles. Go check all that out. And I love getting all these emails of success stories, you coaches that are using this stuff and having a lot of success with it. I know it works. It's going to work, but a 
love to hear it when the, all you coaches that share back with me and the success you're having, that fires me up, motivates me. And also it's just great to hear because I know how that looks. I can see it. I can see it out there and it's really awesome to hear. So send me your success stories via email. And until next week, take care of yourself, your health, your family, your close friends, and take this information out to the field. Take it to the field. You hear that on the outro to this podcast. Take it to the field. There's a reason. I scripted that podcast intro and outro out. I didn't have Charles, the guy who put it together. I had him do the voice part of it, but I wrote that out on purpose because I wanted it to mean something. And at the end of this podcast, you hear, take it to the field, take it to the field, put it into action, start using it. And that's where the magic really happens is when you put it into action and you're going to keep getting better and better. And before you know it, you will have upped your coaching game immensely. All right. Thanks for being a coach. Thank you so much for that. I'm going to thank you on behalf of your players, your kids. Thank you for being a coach and thank you for returning next week. And until then, adios. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field. 